Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The Department of Justice decided the Food and Drug Administration cannot regulate lethal injection drugs. The opinion, written by a Trump appointee, could ease states' access to lethal drugs, thus leading to more executions. The decision comes as states have struggled to obtain drugs for lethal injections. Both overseas and domestic companies have objected to having their products used for capital punishment. Also, a 2012 injunction still prevents the FDA from allowing into the country shipments of sodium thiopental, a rapid onset anesthetic used in a common three-drug combination for executions. Back in 2015, Texas, Arizona, and Nebraska each purchased 1,000 vials of execution drugs from a man in India. In 2017, the FDA formally denied the shipments, ruling that it's illegal to import the drug. The FDA deemed the vials to be unapproved, mislabeled, and that the government is legally bound by the 2012 injunction that prohibits them from allowing thiopental into the country. The FDA decision was upheld by the D.C. Circuit Court. The blocked shipments effectively averted hundreds of executions. Since 2015, states have followed through with approximately 25 executions a year, a significant drop off from prior decades. If DOJ's opinion survives litigation and the FDA cannot regulate lethal injection drugs, then states could eventually be allowed to import and administer them with unknown oversight. Sadiq Hassan is one of the prisoners on death row for their participation in the Lucasville Uprising in 1993. He's been subject to systematic controls and isolation, in response to which he has filed suit. He issued this update late last week. Revolutionary greetings. Just a few lines to let you and others know that I have finally received my final appeal on my SMP hearing. On Thursday, May 9th, the chief legal counsel for ODRC reversed some of my convictions and upheld some. He ruled that all of my privileges should be reinstated. While this is true, I am still dissatisfied with this and will be pursuing legal actions. Updates on my appeal and situations should be coming soon. You should be able to stay posted by visiting lucasvilleamnesty.org. I'm doing well and remain hopeful about many things, so please do not worry about me. Take care and keep the faith. Imam Hassan. Students at Johns Hopkins University occupied the ground floor of Garland Hall, the university's main administration building, for one month. The occupation included groups such as Students Against Private Police and the Hopkins Coalition Against ICE, as well as the West Coalition, which has held protests on every Wednesday since 2013, demanding justice for Tyrone West and other victims of racist police brutality in Baltimore. They called their occupation the Tyrone West Wellness Room. Redecorated with protest signs and a large banner with the demands, no private police, no ICE contracts, justice for Tyrone West. 
The sit-in has transformed Garland Hall into a vibrant community area to protest the incoming private police force at JHU. At the end of the month, after the build to create a private police force moved forward, the sit-in escalated into a full-blown occupation of the entire administration building. The occupation lasted for a week before it was raided by more than 85 cops as well as a bomb squad at 4.30 a.m. Seven people were arrested. Well-known political prisoners Janine and Jana Africa, members of the Move 9, were finally released on parole. The Nine were imprisoned in 1978 following a police assault on their communal home, which ended with the death of Janine's three-week-old child named Life, as well as one Philadelphia cop. Seven years later, the Philly police killed Janine's other son, Little Phil, along with five other children when they dropped an incendiary bomb on the block where the remaining unimprisoned MOVE members still lived. Janine said this regarding the tragedy and staying strong through decades in prison. Quote, There are times when I think about life and my son Phil, but I don't keep those thoughts in my mind long because they hurt. The murder of my children, my family, will always affect me, but not in a bad way. When I think about what this system has done for me and my family, it makes me even more committed to my belief." Unquote. The persistence of the Move 9 during four decades in prison is all the more remarkable given the violence and tragic death of loved ones to which they were subjected. Along with the other Move members who have been released, Janine and Janet plan to push for the remaining three members who are still inside. The U.S. southern border will soon have six new detention locations. The military will provide and build tents to house 7,500 migrants. Immigration and Customs Enforcement will be responsible for the migrants' detention and custody. This announcement comes shortly after the announcement this week that a toddler from Guatemala is the fourth child to die in U.S. custody since December. Today, Trump has announced his new immigration plan, which promises to build a wall, ranks incoming migrants on a point system based on English proficiency and job skills, and ignores deferred action for childhood arrivals, an immigration policy known as DACA. The military is expected to sign a contract for the ICE tents soon, and the locations for the new detention tent villages have not yet been announced. This week, we cover some sensitive topics on the show. We speak with Fable, who tells her story of incarceration when she was barely 18 years old. Fable shares her complicated experiences with mental health, sexuality and gender, consent, and violence in prison. In a prison system where many young people spend formative periods of time on the inside, Fable's experiences help us to see the many ways that incarceration can impact youth and a sense of self. Here she is. I'm Fable. I was previously locked up for close to two years in Georgia. I, uh, I don't know, I got caught selling drugs in high school and then uh, they threw the book in my ass. <laughs> they really did. Yeah. They, uh, I, I was selling research chemicals, you know? I wasn't even selling acid. It was, it was 25i, N-D-O-M-E, some I found on the dark web when I was 17. I was like, oh, I'm gonna make so much money. But, but turns out that I, I had just gotten, I had just gotten popped a couple of days before because I was, I had weed in a car. And, they, and I got out for that one. But then 
literally like four days later they caught me with like a bunch of hits of 25i at school they locked me up i the first six months it was like all the all the court stuff you know so i was at the county jail What happens is when you get locked up, the nurses ask you a bunch of questions. They strip search you. The nurses ask you a bunch of questions like, do you want to kill yourself? Have you ever had medical problems before? Have you ever had thoughts of self-harm? Well, yada, 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 yada. I mean, I was, it was pretty tragic. I was like crying a bunch, you know? So I understand why they ask those questions, but my dumb ass was like, yeah, I want to kill myself. Yeah, I want to die. Yeah, I want to hurt myself. And the, and the nurse was giving me this like weird knowing look. I didn't understand it at the time. And he was like, you sure you want to say that? And I was like, yes, I want to hurt myself. Cause I thought it was going to get me out. You know, I thought it was going to, I thought I would, I, I thought they would have pity or that I could get out some way, but not the case. They were like, okay, go strip search her. I was like, I've already been strip searched. So they take all my clothing and they put me in this room alone. Uh, there's only that it's like a very, very small room, smaller than the room that we're in. Um, so it's probably, like you know seven by ten it's not it's not big at all you know i can maybe just lay down like horizontally or vertically the room i thought was covered in and graffiti but I, I later found out what dried semen looks like when it when it's on the walls and it turns this like i don't know if you've ever seen it before but on the concrete walls it turns this like it turns this like coagulated yellowy crusty color. I thought it was just like somebody was having fun peeing all over the walls. No, they were nutting on the walls. So that's what nut looks like on the walls. I got locked up five days before my birthday and I spent the next five days in suicide watch. I didn't, I wasn't allowed to have any clothes so I was completely naked. They gave me a security blanket, like a weighted type of blanket and a roll of toilet paper and that was it. The only like real human contact I had for the first couple of days was when like food would come and I was I was like I'm not gonna eat this food like this is grody like I feel disgusting and so I don't know I, I, I probably uh, looking back I really just made myself feel more like than than I really ever should have but after uh, after about five days it was my birthday. I like, I like go and see the the the, psych, the therapist or whatever, because you have to see a, a, like you have to see a medical, a mental health professional to get out of suicide watch. And so yeah, uh, I saw a, I saw a medical professional. Some went down in that conversation. That I can't really talk about, um, just concerning my family. So I get out of suicide watch and I get put in my first like general pop area. It was, it was nuts. My first roommate was the tattoo man, Robert Zork, who went on to do a bunch of my tattoos. Um, this jackal, this ugly one that I want to get covered up, um, and this, and also his, inevitably his initials was the first one that he did on me. He was like, if I was like, I don't want to stick and poke so bad. And he was like, if you if you want to, if you want a prison tattoo, if you want a jailhouse tattoo, you gotta let me pick what it is. And I was like, fine, because I was 17. Well, I had just turned 18. He was like, okay. And he put his initials on me. I don't regret it. He later passed away. 
He did a bunch of meth, got hit by uh, an ATV. I mean, he was on an ATV and got hit by an 18-wheeler. So I don't regret that one. I did it. I did throughout most of my prison stuff. I was like, oh my god, I'm a f- I got some dude's initials on me. So I get out of uh, Suicide Watch or whatever, and the first thing I do is I go to the phone and I call my dad, my stepdad. He was like, hey, we're gonna come visit you and try to put some money on your books. Uh, they're ta- they're talking about like 15, 20 years. Um, uh also your girlfriend broke up with you and it was only a one minute conversation because they give you a free one minute conversation and that was my free one minute conversation and i was like my whole life just like i'm looking at 20 years like my girlfriend just broke up with me i i ended up later on catching a bond but my parents didn't bond me out and I don't I don't really understand why they they I, I, I had a lawyer um, I don't really necessarily think my lawyer was the best lawyer and suggested that they didn't bond me out which in retrospect I think that if they had bonded me out I probably wouldn't have done as much time as I did because they would have been like oh you have a job you're going to college like we're not gonna ruin this you know what I mean but because I just sat they were just like ha I'm gonna throw the book at you you know so, uh, yeah, uh, that's how I started my county jail experience. I met a lot of cool characters, um, a lot of people that changed my life forever. My first roommates were the tattoo man, um, this guy that we affectionately called Chopper, and some young kid who got booked on meth or something like that. There was this, like, crazy that happened in my county where... Like, the SWAT team went into this one neighborhood across from where I worked, and there was, like, a shootout with the cops, and I later found out what happened, and they were, like, they ended up, like, finding bodies in the wall and stuff like that, and so I got locked up with the dude that was being held hostage by the gunman. The gunman got killed, but he was being held hostage, and the gunman was forcing him to smoke crack and, like, watch his sister be raped, and... They found bodies in his in, in the walls of the gunman's house that he was being held hostage in. And they locked him up for they locked him and his sister up for months. So, yeah, he was my he was my uh, my my uh, first roommate. Uh, him and Zorkin. Before I got in, I. You know, I struggled a lot with, like, gender stuff throughout my whole life, but, like, not really, like, being, but, like, only, like, pseudo-subconsciously, you know what I mean? Like, that that conversation was happening, but it was happening so far removed from my, like, conscious existence. Like, um, like, I would just, I, I would just, like, I was locking parts of my brain away from myself, you know what I mean? Like, I would have those conversations and then just force myself to forget about them, you know? Before I was in, before I, I, I got locked up, I, I had like various phases where I would sleep with people of the same sex as me or have interactions that weren't very straight. But, you know, before I got locked up and stuff, I had like this girlfriend and I had had like a couple of girlfriends before that. And I was like, oh, girls don't want to date like a, like a gay dude or a bi dude. They don't. And so I like kind of just like suppress that stuff for myself 
But I was always kind of in my head, like, I'm probably bisexual, you know what I mean? The first few days, I was kind of honest with my roommates, but then I got so scared that I was going to get treated like a or treated like a chum that I just, I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't anymore. You know, I didn't tell anybody anymore. I still had a lot of thoughts about it. I still had a lot of processing to do for myself. And, you know, I just pretended like I was straight, but I ended up like sleeping with a bunch of people. Not like a bunch of people, but like, I mean, I like prison. I don't know. The prison is weird, you know, like you do, you never thought you would. You do people you never thought you would. You're When you're surrounded by someone, you're like in a cell with them for so long. It's like, they want to you. It, it, for me, I didn't have a lot of willpower. It was like, it was hard to say no. And so like, some of them didn't, I mean, all, most, all of them didn't have the best consent. And some of them I consider rape, but you know, it is, it is, it, it is what it, it is what it is kind of. Like I had some good sex in there that was not consensual. I had some great sex that wasn't consensual in there, but it's like, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it's hard to explain to, it's hard to explain to people on the outside world how, how it is, you know? Like I'm with, I'm with this person like 24 seven, we're locked in a room together at night. Like, like it, sometimes it just gets so annoying to like, like sometimes you, he just, he'll just press the issue like for so long that it's just like, oh yeah, fine, I'll, fine you know and so yeah I had a lot of weird bad sex in there um but yeah but like some of it was like kind of like traumatizing and I was like I don't I don't want to do this and I would keep like I would do it and then I would pretend to be, and I would like pretend to be straight for like everybody else and we had some gay people get locked up with us I had been I had been locked up for about like two or three months uh, uh People had come and gone. I made friends. Uh, seen my parents. Like had conversations with public defenders and lawyers and and uh, you know other things like that. But the, these two like we in prison. You know, not most politically correct. We call them like punks, which I, I really like. You know what I mean? Uh, calling like, but we, yeah, we would call like we would call them like punks or sissies, um, but these two, the, these two gay dudes got locked up in the same, like, cell as us, and one was this, like, really tall, beautiful, uh, like, I call her, I use she and her pronouns for her, but I, I don't, I don't know if that's, like, actually what they did, you know how, like, some people, like, she and her are drag queen, she was, like, really tall, beautiful, black, had, like, long, long braids, um, and, just like was very sassy and the other one was kind of this like little short kind of chubby dapper uh mid 20 year old with like a with like the hair that you would like comb back had a little pompadour and you know we'd all been locked up for drugs i got moved from the cell i was in to another cell uh after i had like an altercation with this one dude which doesn't really matter but i got moved into their cell Actually, I got moved into a cell with just uh, just the like the dude with the pompadour at first, and you know we talked and about gay stuff plenty, and 
it ended up being me and the two gay dudes and that was the most fun I've probably ever had in prison I mean there were some really fun times in there don't get me wrong but this one was probably the most fun I had I would just like stay up all night listening to Henry singing like Beyonce and and like hearing them both talk about going to gay clubs and like doing gay drugs and having gay sex and and we just all really kikied together like very very hard and it was super super cute I learned a lot like one of them taught me how to twerk and braid and it was great we all shared books and and were each other's support system for like a month or two and it was really really beautiful and special I think I think I felt the most free and open then you know um at least I mean when I would leave my cell block and go hang out with general population I would like put this like mask on literally I would mask up you know what I mean but when I was in there I would like entertain these ideas of what you know what it would be like to be you know gay or or not straight or to exist in that world you know after they both ended up leaving and one got sentenced to go to a rehab and the other caught time in prison um it was really sad for me i was like oh damn these are my close close friends like i we spent a lot of really good times together i had been locked up about this point i had been locked about five months i started going to court and stuff and hearing them say like 10 years 15 years five years you know um and i got this roommate who was like an older fellow like a skinny white dude um in like his late 30s probably mid 30s late 30s um had been in and out of prison his whole life covered in tattoos um he had been in the cell block with us and I knew him um and we were and we were like all right friends he like pushed a lot of my boundaries but he was like sweet to me you know we kind of end up we, we kind of end up having this like you know uh, I don't know I, I never really wanted to like start that type of relationship with him it just kind of ended up going there because he was very like pushy um, he would like call me like female coded things um, when we were t- alone at night together and stuff um, like princess or like things like that and um I don't know, it really just broke my brain. Um, he, he like, made a comment to another inmate. He was, like, the other inmate, like, knew that I wasn't, like, straight and was, like, fine with it. You know what I mean? And he made a comment to the other inmate. He was, like, yeah. Uh, he likes when I touch her like a girl, you know? And I, I don't know. It, that one, that, after, after that, uh, I don't know, I, I really repressed. I really, like, hid. And I like hid that part of myself in my head because I didn't want to be treated like that anymore. So I was friends with this guy and he didn't really have anybody looking out for him um, on the outside. And, you know, I would have money on my books because my parents would put money on my books. And that was very, very sweet of them. And I, so I was able to get like ramen noodle soups and like beef sticks and stuff like that. And I would share with him because the food that they give us is really just not enough. And so... Uh, he started taking advantage of my kindness and 
I stopped sharing with him as much because I was like, I also need some of these things for myself. And if I give you, and you're like taking advantage of this very nice thing that I don't have to do for you. And he got mad about it. Um, started hanging out with different people in there. And one day he hands me this note and it's like 10 soups, five beef sticks, like 10 wound pies. If you don't pay, I'm gonna beat your ass. If you tell anybody, I'm gonna beat their too. So he hands me this right before I go to my room for the night to get locked down. I'm like stressing. I tell my roommate at the time and he was like, there's two ways that we can handle this, you know? Either you can man up and do it yourself, or I can handle it for you, and you're gonna be my you're gonna whenever there's like women in bikinis on the TV. And I was like, I don't want that. That sounds really disgusting. Also, he was kind of grooming me in, in this weird way. It's hard to take a segue from the story, but he was grooming me in this weird way. He was like, you're going to prison. You're gonna do like 10, 15 years. Like, prison is scary and tough and hard. You're gonna get stabbed unless you or unless you fight, you know what I mean? Like, he was really, really like, he was really like giving me the fear tactics and I was falling for it because I was young and numb. Um, but he was like, if I can handle this for you or you can do this yourself and man up. And so I was like, I don't wanna be your so I'm gonna handle this myself. I stay up the whole night shadow boxing in my room. It was like a scene from, a fight movie or something like that. It was a montage. I'm like, I'm like walking back and forth. All the lights are out. It's like two in the morning. I'm like punching the walls. I'm simultaneously running to the toilet and my brain's out because I'm so nervous. And the morning comes around and I run downstairs to go clean my room. And my roommate is like, what the f are you doing? You never clean the room. He's gonna know that something's up. You need to just stay in here until they start breakfast or whatever. And then you handle your business. So I did, I stayed in there. Um, and they called breakfast, chow call, chow call. They say it like, in like really ridiculous. And like some of the guards really like saying it a certain type of way. They'd be like, chow call, chow call. So everybody lines up on the wall. I stand at this table next to the stairs. He's the last one out of his room. And I hear him in flip flops on the stairs. And I'm standing on this table and he like makes it to the bottom stairs and I just launch off the table that I'm like leaning on and I hit him, I get him, I hit him. And we start fighting and it qu very quickly goes to the ground and we're like grappling with each other and it very quickly gets broken up because I expertly planned it that uh, the fight would happen right in front of the guards when they were giving us breakfast so that it would get broken up quickly so that I wouldn't, I wouldn't give like my be like come on I was very very I was probably 115 pounds they take me up front and I'm like I had the card in my pocket that he gave the charge card in my pocket and I was like in my like sock I like tucked it away in my sock and I was like look I had to this is why and the guards like understood or whatever and you know they put they put me on lockdown and I got locked out, back down when I get back to the cell and everybody's like yeah, very excited. It was really cute. And I had a black eye and I thought I was so cool because I had a black eye and I never uh, was afraid of fighting again. I don't know, nothing ever, nothing, no, no fight ever really scared me after that. This has been Kite Line. 
Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, Kite Line Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening. Thank you.